Well, 60 years, how great is that? And how wonderful to be back with all of you. Some of you have never seen us before. Others of you are so pleased we're gone. We've been away for a little time. You, you never know what to expect when you've been away for a long time. And people rem remember things you wish they would have forgotten. You know how that is? Reminds me of what I was given not long ago. There's a lady in a little dusty southern Mississippi town who had been living there all her life, and she remembered everything about everyone. And there was a trial that came to that little courthouse, and so um, Granny Jones was called to the witness stand, and uh, there was an attorney who stood before her, and the prosecuting attorney said, uh, Ms. Jones, do you know me? He said, yeah, Mr. Williams, uh, I've known you since you were a boy, and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. <laughs> you lie, you cheat, you cheat on your wife, and, and you manipulate people, you talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a big shot when you haven't the brains to realize you'll never amount to more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yeah. I, I know you really well, Mr. Williams. He was absolutely flabbergasted, so he quickly pointed over to the defense attorney and said, Ms. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? <laughs> and she said, well, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a little boy. He's lazy, bigoted, has a real drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the worst in the state of Mississippi. Not to mention that he cheated on his wife with three different women. One of them was your wife. <laughs> yeah, I know him. Defense attorney almost passed out. The judge asked both counselors to approach the bench and in a very quiet voice said, if any of you idiots ask her if she knows me, you're going right to the prison. <laughs> you're going. So I don't want to know if you know me. It's not about me. I'm here with all of you to celebrate what this is all about. And uh, rather than the horizontal being our focus, I'd like to suggest we immediately turn it to the vertical. And I'd like for us to talk to someone or listen to someone we've never met before, but he, under God's guidance, was brave enough to put what he witnessed into writing. His name is Isaiah. And this particular scene out of the book that bears his name was written, uh, well, it took place around 740 B.C. We know that because we know that was the year the king, King Uzziah, died. What you may not remember is that Uzziah died a leper. He lived a full life and, for the most part, a great life. But when he became great, he somehow lost the script and dissolved into a self-serving, arrogant man that resulted in God's judgment on him. We never know if Uzziah and Isaiah were personal friends, but no doubt Isaiah lived the last 20 years of the king's life. 
And by the way, when the king was buried, the, the inscription on the, on, the, on the stone was simply, he was a leper. Tragic times when this is written. Economy has been in the tank. Morals are at an all-time low. Priests and prophet alike are adrift. Most of them false and phony. And here's young Isaiah, best we can tell, about 20 years of age, trying to figure life out like some of you would do in the age in which we live. I've lived quite a while, and I've not known our country to be in worse shape than now. And if I were a 20-year-old man today, I would do exactly what the prophet did. I'd find my way to some place that was quiet, called in those days the temple. And I'd sit before the Lord, and I'd ask for guidance. How do I respond to times like this? I'm not there without my problems as well. I've added to it what's happening around me. And so I need a fresh word from God. That's why I love the way chapter 6 of his book opens. In the year King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Pause for a moment. Learn to pause at places when you're reading your Bible and just let that sink in. I saw the Lord. He was high and he was lifted up. And I saw that the train of his robe filled the temple. When I read words like that, they, they put a chill up my back. I've never had an experience like that. You haven't either, most likely. I've, I've never come to a place where God was that literally that real. And Isaiah must have been dumbstruck. Suddenly he looks around and he sees seraphim. Saraph means to burn. And these are the flaming angels that flood the throne room of God. So Isaiah is given the privilege of seeing in the room where God is enthroned. And he sees these seraphim. Hebrew doesn't use an S. He uses an I-M for a plural ending. They were not seraphs. They were seraphim. And there were an innumerable number of them, each with six wings, with two of the wings that covered their faces, with two of the wings they covered their feet, and with two, there was the flapping of wings as they flew. Imagine that. Isaiah sees it all, and these angels are not only flooding the throne of God, they are speaking words to God. The seraphim stood above him, each one with these six wings, and verse 3 says, one called out to another. The way it appears in the original is the idea of an antiphonal voice. One group answered to another group. 
Holy, 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 they answered. And another, back again, the same. Let's do that. We're divided into two sections. You begin, nice and loud. Holy, holy, holy. Louder. Again. Again. Holy, holy. It filled the temple space. So much so that smoke was added to the room and the foundations began to tremble. If there's any place in the country that understands foundations trembling, it's California. Maybe like a 7.8 or 9 or maybe an 8.0. Everything shook. He not only sees the living God and hears from these seraphim, now he's in a room that's shaking. And they add to their words, which represent the infinite holiness of God. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah needed to hear that. In a world that's lost its way, it's easy to think that God is also lost in the middle of it. Never. Isaiah witnesses what he writes and hears them say that God is at work in all of his glory and all of his holiness. We work our way through these eight verses at the beginning of chapter six. I want to share with you four things that I, I hope this church will never forget. I hope no church will ever forget these things. First, I draw from these opening words of verses one through four that God and God alone is awesome. God alone is awesome. Say that with me. God alone is awesome. All right? Since that's true, would you please restrict the word awesome to God and stop throwing it into everything? My Toyota is awesome. No, it isn't awesome. My, my dog is awesome. No, your dog isn't awesome. My cat, don't go any further. Your cat is not awesome. My girlfriend is awesome. None of the above. Only God is filled with awe and infinite holiness. There isn't a speck of soil about him. Infinitely holy, which is the reason the word is repeated three times and yet again and yet again. They're extolling the uplifted God and they are announcing he and he alone is awesome. Whatever you believe about God says everything about you. Great place to start. What is God like? He's awesome. He understands the end from the beginning. He knows exactly where you are, why you were there, and where that will lead you. He understands your confusion. He reads in your mind the worries that plague you. None of it is surprising or confusing to him because being awesome, he's able to see through all of it. Never forget, in the next 60 years, should the Lord tarry. Never forget, 
that God is awesome. You can make it a greeting among you as you see each other from one week to the next. God and God alone is awesome. He being high and holy, lifted up in this incredible setting, reveals himself as the awesome God. What happens on the heels of that revelation is very significant. Look again, verse 5. Then I said, now that I've heard the seraphim, now that I'm caught in this uh, incredible scene, then I said, woe is me. I'm ruined. Various versions of the Bible render that in various ways. One of them, I'm doomed. I'm done. I think the message simply says, doomsday. We might say it's curtains. It's over for me. In the presence of such infinite holiness and the awesome presence of these angelic creatures who flood your throne with their praise. I'm done. He isn't trying to be humble. He's admitting with vulnerability the truth. Here's why he says that. Woe is me because I am, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live in a world that's full of unclean lips. Let's let it say what it says. He's addicted to profanity. He swears frequently. In angry moments, out come the dirty words. In irritating moments, he will swear. He will speak against another. His tongue is loose. And he sees the infinite holiness of God and he suddenly finds the Lord pinpointing the area of great sin to him. We might call it a besetting sin. Don't answer aloud, but what is yours? If you and you alone were sitting before God and God alone and this room were empty and suddenly the scene turns to this, What would, what would you realize is so wrong? What realm of depravity holds sway over you? I love the vulnerability of Isaiah. No, nothing to hide. No interest in, in impressing. He, he simply says, I, I, I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips. I live among people with filthy lips. No exaggeration, complete honesty. I use profanity. I curse when I'm angry. I swear all too often. I gossip and criticize. Uh, I say inappropriate and insulting things. I'm finished before a God like this. Second, never forget God and God alone reveals the depravity of our own lives. You may be married to someone, you know them well, but you don't know the deepest secrets of their depravity. 
God has no secrets. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. He knows it all. He sees it all. And Isaiah now is an open book and the holiness of God penetrates him like a sharp sword. Ugh. And I think Isaiah in writing that pauses and lets the rebukes sting. There isn't enough of that. I'm uh, concerned about you who become all too familiar with holy things. By the way, it's a great time for me to suggest you're reading a wonderful book called Dangerous Calling by Paul Tippett. He identifies in one of his chapters familiarity. How we can sort of skate and chatter through the whole thing and give the impression we're, we're read up on, on spiritual truth when in fact we're phony baloney. I like the way Tozer wrote it. May not the inadequacy of much of our spiritual experience be traced back to our habit of skipping through the corridor of the kingdom like children in the marketplace, always chattering about everything but learning the true value of nothing. It can happen at Biola. It can happen in your home. It can happen in your, your group where you meet. You're good at chattering about it, but pausing to learn the true value and letting the truth hit you deeply to where you say without hesitation, I'm absolutely exposed. I'm done. I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and that's enough. I love this next part because it is so like our, our God to step in. He leaves Isaiah there. feeling like an absolute, absolute failure. And we read, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his, in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with the tongs. This is where you pause and let the wonder in. One of the seraphim goes to the, blast furnace and pulls a burning coal and what does he do where does he touch him he touched my mouth not not my feet not my head not my hands he touched the place that is of greatest concern to me and therefore to him, feel it. As that hot coal cauterizes his lips. 
As I was working my way through school a number of years ago, I served an apprenticeship in a machine shop. And part of the machine apprenticeship included working in what was called the heat treat department. It was a series of blast furnaces where long rods of steel were tempered in the furnace. And then after they had reached the, the right temperature, that's the very color of the furnace itself, if it's a white furnace, then this rod of steel is now white. And the heat is unbearable. That's why you wear a thick, transparent mask that covers the face and ears and a whole garb in front of you as you can stand the heat. And with long tongs, you pull that rod from the blast furnace. And you can hear it all over the shop when you drop that steel into the oil bath. It's like... Like that. It's a scream. It's that kind of thing. Easy to hurry by this and think, well, tongues, cold, lips. And he probably felt better after that. No, as a matter of fact, he will never be the same because of that. And look at what he says. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. <laughs> I love it. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Number three, only God in grace can fully forgive our sins. You must hear that before you leave this place. Otherwise, you will live in only the misery of your mess. Whatever your addiction, whatever your realm of failure, whatever the shame, were it to be printed on the screen for all to read, whatever that may be, Along comes our God of grace to touch us in the very area of our lives. Grace. Grace greater than what? Than all our sin. For almost 20 of my 23 years here, I sat on a bench with our minister of music named, remember? Howie, that's right. Howie Stevenson sat right by me. You saw that, but if you were here at the time, but what you didn't know is what he said to me almost every time before I got up to preach. He would lean over and cup his hand and say, hey, Chuck, preach grace. Then he'd settle back and go to sleep. And I would get up and I would preach grace. And the guys would tell him later, he really did preach grace. I'm, I'm sure he did. That's why I wasn't worried about it. Crazy about Howie Stevenson. You know why? Because he's a man of grace. When you're around the God of grace, there is no long lecture. There is no hateful shaming there's no hands on the hips 
saying, you here again with the same problem? No, no. Grace doesn't do that. Grace meets you where you are, cleanses you, as we read here, and takes away the iniquity and forgives the sin. The result is what? A contrite heart. I love the word contrite. Don't hear much about that word. David uses it in Psalm 51 after he's shacked up with Bathsheba. The result has been the the shameful rain that followed for those long months where he lived in hypocrisy and had her husband killed and faked it. By the way, no psalms are written during that time. You don't, you don't write the Lord's songs in a foreign land. And finally, Nathan the prophet is led by God to come to the king and present to him the exposure of his sin. And at the climax of that encounter, he says to David, you are the man. David's response to it is magnificent. Doesn't deny it, doesn't argue, doesn't stand up and try to blame another. Says, I, 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 I have sinned. And that's when he wrote the Psalm 51. And he writes of a broken and contrite heart. You know what? As we as our church out in Frisco, Texas, look for various staff people to serve our needs. Or with our ministry of insight for living, we, we look for people with contrite hearts. People who have been broken. You see, contrite hearts make no excuses. Blame no one else. Take full responsibility. Acknowledge the wrongness of their lives. Call it what it is. Walk humbly with their God. Grateful to be able to walk on. Isaiah. Your sin is forgiven. Your iniquity is removed. Only God can do that. The God of all grace. The God who is alone awesome. The God who alone can penetrate our depravity and reveal it all. And the God who comes in grace to forgive us as we acknowledge the wrong. But God isn't finished. Now that he has Isaiah's attention, look at that eighth verse then. Don't miss that particle. Then, when? After there's been the acknowledgement, after there has been the cleansing, after there has been a contrite spirit, then the Lord said, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Go where? The world that has lost its way. 
world that could not be in a worse condition, a world marked by random murders, human trafficking, heartbreaking fractures in homes, hypocrisy among the clergy, shallow immaturity among those who keep coming to church but aren't growing, aren't learning, aren't changing. Those are the ones who will go for me. I, I, I love Isaiah's response. I'm here. I remember when I had my uh, rather mild but very real heart attack. It was in the year 2000, and I was taken to the hospital. And, uh, you know, I, that was an absolute shock to me. I thought I was bulletproof. And I show up, and, and uh, they take me in a room, and physician comes, and, and uh, he says to me, I think uh, in the circumflex artery, you've got a slight blockage, and we're going to put a stent in there. Okay? Great. He didn't tell me where they have to cut to put the stent. I thought he'd start right up here where it was, but he went to a very vulnerable part of my anatomy, <laughs> and he cut into my groin, and before long, he found the spot. And he's looking at a monitor, looking at a while he's doing it. And I'm laying there like, <laughs> I go, is that me? You know what he said? Nobody else in the room, is there? I thought that's kind of a smart response. He could have just said yes. Isaiah, there's nobody else in the room. Who's going to go? I'm available. I'm not all that great a messenger, God, but I'll tell you, I've seen you, and I know you're, you're awesome. And I've had you expose the depravity of my life, and, and I've heard your grace in forgiving me, and, and so now I'm ready to step out. I can do that by your grace with your strength. That's the fourth, by the way. God alone sovereignly directs us to the place he would have us go. No one else can do that. No one else should try. And often in the directing, people are surprised. When God led me to leave the Fullerton Church and to go to Dallas to to, to lead the seminary, I, I, I fought that. Honestly, I, I couldn't see myself in that role. I, I, I'm, I'm the farthest thing from a scholar. And they want me to go lead that school. And uh, he, he finally won. He, he tends to win when he pushes the point. And uh, I then became convinced and then, and then the call for me was invincible. Church was out of debt. Staff was strong. Congregation full. United. Pulling together. Perfect time. 
I don't know how many people want to know what's wrong here. Nothing. Nothing. Just God has a way of moving us. You know, he still does that. <laughs> That's why Dathan Brown's at Hume Lake. That's why those five missionaries went to Ecuador to reach the Alcas. Against all odds, they went. How grateful I am they went. It resulted in a book written by one of the widows, Elizabeth Elliot, Through Gates of Splendor, which I read as I was being shipped overseas to go to Okinawa in the Marine Corps. And I read that book, and I read it yet again, and I thought, if those men can do that, can be sent and be used in that magnificent a way, regardless of what happened, I'm available. I've had the pleasure of meeting the five widows that have lived on beyond their husbands. What a great group. Some of them are now dying. Some are gone. I told Elizabeth, who was in our church some time ago, my story, and, and she said, uh, you don't know how many people have told me that. She's about to kept a list of them. There would be in the thousands. Who will go? Who will I send? I thought if you sent Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, if you sent Nate Saint, if you sent those other two guys, I'm available. So I go to Dallas Seminary. Wow. How strange is that? Maybe not to you, but to me. You know, the only time I ever got a standing ovation at the seminary, when I changed the dress code. <laughs> Guys don't have to wear suits and ties anymore. All right. <laughs> I also opened the windows and let a little grace air flow through and introduced them to something that had been missing, and that's laughter and the joy of ministry. Who would have ever guessed? I never would have guessed that. Neither would have Amy Wilson Carmichael. Little Irish lass who was shy and unhealthy, spent her last years in a wheelchair and often not able to get out of bed, kept writing her books, doing her work of poetry, rescuing girls from the street, lifting up the lives of those that were broken in South India. And magnificent was that little shy woman who urged everyone around her not to settle for anything less than the best. She wrote from prayer that asked that I may be sheltered from winds that beat on thee, from fearing what I should aspire, from faltering what I should climb higher, from silken self, captain free, thy soldier who would follow thee. From the subtle love of softening things, easy choices, weakenings, not lesser spirits fortified, not this way went the crucified. From all that dims thy Calvary, Lamb of God, deliver me. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope, no disappointments tire, the passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. I love that line. Let me not sink to be a clod, 
Make me thy fuel, flame of God. I speak to clods today. You're becoming a clod. Break out of that. This isn't the anniversary of this church. This is your first day of the rest of your life. Find your fulfillment in God's awesomeness. His magnificent ability to penetrate the truth of your lying life. The one who's full of grace to forgive us when we acknowledge and then sovereign enough to send us to a place he would have us go. You know the only answer? Yes, sir. Go. Go. Bow with me, would you? I don't know where you are in the middle of all of this, and I don't know what the message is to you, but I've, I've learned over the years that there are always a few who leave thinking God had me in mind when that message was prepared. Here am I. Send me. And so we come to you today, our Father, as we would come to no other. You made us. You call us. You want to use us. Forgive our reluctance, our fear. Give us an invincible confidence that your hand is on our lives. May we never look back. Bless this church in the years to come that they may continue to be a lighthouse of grace and hope. In the name of Jesus. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.